Hey everyone, welcome to the Bitcoin Fortress podcast, helping you increase your financial freedom. This is episode 19, recorded on May 28th, 2022. This podcast is for entertainment only and is not investing advice, so please do your own homework. So this week we'll have a market update get into some Bitcoin news, um, found uh, four articles I think are interesting to talk about. And then uh, we'll finish up talking about uh, becoming a sovereign individual. Um, I just read that book recently and so uh, kind of inspired me to talk a little bit more about that, um, about, you know, Number one, read the book. Number two, buy Bitcoin. And number three, diversify internationally. So uh, we'll finish up with that. Okay, so moving into the market update, investors enjoyed a breather this week from the market's April and May sell-off that had taken the NASDAQ composite solidly into bear territory and the S&P 500 20% below its record high. The Dow Jones index surged 6.2% for the week to snap an eight-week decline, its longest losing streak since 1932, while the S&P climbed 6.5% and the NASDAQ jumped 6.8%, both ending seven-week slides. Much of the week's gains came Thursday and Friday as stocks rallied with strong retail earnings and a slowing inflation report sparking hopes entering the three-day weekend that the Federal Reserve's tightening policy can avoid tipping the U.S. economy into a recession. The question now is whether the market has found a bottom. With the NASDAQ now 25% below its peak, the S&P off 13%, and the Dow down 10%. Um, My own view, which I think is consistent with some contrarian investors out there, is that we will probably end up having a melt-up where the market will go up faster and and, um, higher than a lot of people expect, um, followed by a crash. So um, that's certainly one camp. The other camp says uh, this is just going to keep going down. Um, but either way, I think if you're properly diversified, you know, you shouldn't be too worried about what uh, what's going on in the market. And certainly if you hold Bitcoin, you just uh, stack and save and you don't worry about the stock market. So, okay, so moving into Bitcoin news for the week. This one here is from uh, Bitcoin.com says JP Morgan sees significant upside to Bitcoin replaces real estate with crypto as preferred alternative asset. Global investment bank JP Morgan published a bullish note on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency Wednesday. The bank strategists, including Nicholas Penny Gertzoglu, wrote that their price target for Bitcoin remains at $38,000, implying significant upside for digital assets from here. At the time of writing, Bitcoin is trading at 29,784, down 2.4% over the past seven days and almost 25% over the last 30 days. JP Morgan's fair value estimate for Bitcoin is nearly 28% higher than the current price of BTC. 
JP Morgan Strategies detailed the past month's crypto market correction looks more like capitulation relative to last January, February. And going forward, we see upside for Bitcoin and crypto markets more generally. While the investment bank's price target for Bitcoin is 38,000, its strategists have said that their long-term theoretical price target for the cryptocurrency is 150,000. In addition, the global investment bank now sees cryptocurrencies as its preferred alternative asset class, replacing real estate amid soaring mortgage rates. Now, this is really interesting because this is something that I've been talking about in the last couple of weeks. I know a couple of weeks ago I compared Bitcoin to real estate, um, and uh, uh, I've actually been thinking. You know, uh, last week I uh, did a post about and and talked a little bit about the real estate market and how. Um, you know, it seems rather overvalued uh, and therefore it might be a good idea to, to sell some real estate if you have appreciated uh, investment real estate um, and diversify into Bitcoin um, given the price uh, differential. So it's just kind of interesting to see an institutional, uh, uh, the institutions are, you know, talking about this too now. JP Morgan detailed that the recent market downturn hurt cryptocurrencies more than other alternative investments, including real estate. That's true. In fact, real estate just has kept going up um, until the until interest rates really started to move. Noting that this trend suggests crypto has more room to rebound, the strategist wrote, we thus replace real estate with digital assets as our preferred alternative asset class along with hedge funds. The JP Morgan note followed a massive sell-off in the crypto market amid the implosion of cryptocurrency Terra and algorithmic stablecoin Terra USD. The strategist noted that while the dramatic collapse of the two cryptocurrencies has weakened the sentiment of many crypto investors, there was little sign for that so far that venture capital funding into the crypto sector slowing down. Coincidentally, major VC firm Andreessen Horowitz A16Z announced Wednesday the launch of of its new $4.5 billion crypto fund. Um, So it doesn't look like anything slowing down in the altcoin space. Uh, But uh, anyway, I thought that was an interesting article to highlight. Um, In particular, uh, the fact that uh, they see better valuation in Bitcoin now than than, uh, real estate, uh, which again kind of lines up with some of the things that I've been uh, talking about here recently. Uh, The next article is from Cointelegraph. um, And this one is uh, entitled, Falling Bitcoin Price Doesn't Affect El Salvador. Now it's time to buy more, reveals Deputy Dania Gonzalez. Um... Dania Gonzalez, deputy of the Republic of El Salvador, was recently in Brazil to reveal her country's experiences with the decision to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. Gonzalez's invitation to Brazil came from digital influencer Roderick's Digital, who was recently in El Salvador to produce a documentary about cryptocurrencies. Among the lawmakers' activities in Brazil was attending BitConf 2022, as well as meeting with Dape Capital CEO Danielle Abdo Filippi and Ana L.A., CEO of agency ROE. 
Between her agendas, Gonzalez spoke with Cointelegraph and revealed how Bitcoin has helped to change people's lives in El Salvador and how the federal government, led by President Nayib Bukele, has been taking advantage of the resources invested in Bitcoin to improve the economy. Asked about El Salvador's investment in Bitcoin and how it can impact people's lives as the value of Bitcoin is falling, Gonzalez highlighted that every investment has a cost and a benefit. What Naeem Bukele did was buy Bitcoins and make a profit at certain strategic moments, she said. In cryptocurrencies, there are times when you can make a profit and there are times when you have to invest more. Now cryptocurrency is down. This happens. It's normal. But at this point, instead of being sad, instead of thinking that you lost all your investment, it's time to buy more Bitcoins because now the price is cheap. That's the strategy. According to Gonzalez, El Salvador is also benefiting from investments already benefiting from investments made in Bitcoin. She cited two ventures, a veterinary hospital and a public school that were made possible thanks to cryptocurrency. She explained, Bukele built a veterinary hospital to benefit the population where services, any service for your pet costs 25 cents US. Even an operation costs this amount and that is accessible to the entire population. Bitcoin has been converted into a benefit for the people. Now with the reserve we have in Bitcoin, we, mu we must build 20 more schools. Before Bitcoin to do this, we had to approve projects included in the nation's general budget and use people's money for construction. Now these works are done thanks to all the profits made with Bitcoin. Gonzalez indicated that Bukele's strategy has already proven to be successful in terms of socioeconomic impact. This is the main reason why the president also buys Bitcoins, she said. He does this to be able to generate profits for social projects for the people. This is not just words. This is something tangible for the population because they can see part of the public services being realized thanks to Bitcoin profits. Cointelegraph also spoke with the lawmaker about the central bank digital currencies, also known as CBDCs, and how their issuance by nations can impact the cryptocurrency market. Gonzalez stated that she does not see a clash between cryptocurrencies and CBDCs, believing that both should coexist together in the digital ecosystem that will guide nations in the future. Furthermore, she stated that the proposed issuance of CBDCs by countries shows that they have understood the power of the crypto economy. The deputy also highlighted that El Salvador is working to expand the effects of the Bitcoin law and will build an ecosystem based on cryptocurrencies with the elimination of taxes for sectors linked to the crypto economy. In addition, she highlighted that other laws will be reformulated to meet the new demands of the digital economy and to reduce bureaucracy and public administration procedures. She explained, we wanna be possible to open a business in five minutes here in El Salvador. We already have a national digital wallet system for cryptocurrencies and we intend to make a law so that investors from all over the world can have immediate citizenship in El Salvador if they invest in the world of Bitcoin in our country. Gonzalez also revealed to Cointelegraph that the adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender attracted investors and companies from all over the world and strengthened merchants and local communities' independence from bank monopolies. It opened up an opportunity for independent merchants to have a new payment gateway because the payment channels could be cash or could be credit or debit cards, she said. But if you go to a bank and want to apply for the point of sale to accept credit payments or debit, you pay a membership fee, you pay a commission, that can be up to 9% for each purchase. Bitcoin, on the other hand, is fully decentralized financing. 
there is no commission if you use the national wallet, she explained. Another direct benefit cited by the deputy is related to financial remittances made by Salvadorans who live in other countries such as the United States. According to Gonzalez, there are 7 million Salvadorans living out inside El Salvador and approximately 3 million outside its borders, mainly in the United States. Thanks to Bitcoin, remittances from the United States can be made without fees. She said, Gonzalez also claimed that Western Union lost roughly $400 million in remittance business last year because of El Salvador's Bitcoin law. Gonzalez revealed details about her country's Bitcoin beach and surf city projects, both carried out in the El Zante region. In them, Bitcoin is used as a form of social transformation that promotes crypto payments and economic development through digital assets. She explained that Bitcoin Beach existed before the BTC law was passed. On Bitcoin Beach, you can buy a soda or a pupusa, a typical El Salvador food on the street, or go to a prestigious restaurant, and you can pay with Bitcoins. The deputy also revealed that a project called Surf City is underway in El Zante, which seeks to train the local community to take advantage of tourism related to surfing, as the beach has some of the best waves for the sport. These communities have now benefited from job opportunities and businesses or work in hotels and restaurants that now have more potential than before. Now more tourists come to El Salvador because they can pay for everything they want with Bitcoins, she said. I know companies that came from Singapore a few months ago and now have about 50 Salvadorans working on their operations. This shows how Bitcoin has been changing people's lives in El Salvador. In addition, the deputy highlighted how Bitcoin has been favoring the unbanked who now through cryptocurrency, can access financial services without the bureaucracy of traditional systems. Traditional banks excluded 70% of the country's population from their services for different reasons. In addition, of the 30% of the population that has access to financial services, only 23% were in banks, while 7% did so through cooperatives with very high rates. Now Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are favoring this excluded population that now has power and opportunity. So I thought that was an interesting uh, sort of uh, take on what's going on in El Salvador right now, because you know you do hear you know some positives and some negatives um, from the uh, adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender, but it definitely seems to be um, helping the El Salvador economy. It's driving tourism. And, um, um, you know, they seem to be benefiting from it, uh, even though um, the International Monetary Fund doesn't like it. <clears throat> and um, for that matter, neither does the U.S. I think there was some kind of bill in Congress wanting to uh, review their adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender. Um, since they all also have the dollar as as legal tender there, they don't ha- they don't actually issue their own currency. Um, but anyway, I just thought that was an interesting update um, from El Salvador. Uh, this next one really isn't directly Bitcoin related, but it uh, it does sort of relate to why uh, it's good to hold Bitcoin. Uh, this here is from Bitcoin.com. Uh, after defaulting, Sri Lanka plans to print $2.8 billion worth of rupees, inflation rate expected to top 40%. After defaulting on its obligations for the first time, 
the government in crisis hit Sri Lanka now expects the country's inflation rate to top 40%, Prime Minister Ranil Wickreshminge has said. With the country now facing a steep revenue shortfall, authorities have said they intend to print money net worth nearly $2.8 billion or 1 trillion rupees, which will be used to partly fund the government welfare programs. As per remarks published in the Business Standard, uh, Wick Meshingi concedes that injecting 1 trillion rupees into circulation may lead to more hardship and further turmoil in the country. Nevertheless, the recently installed prime minister insists the reforms being undertaken by his government are intended to improve the welfare of the population. Looking at the hard days ahead, there have to be protests. It's natural when people suffer, they must protest. But we want to ensure that it does not destabilize the political system. With the interim budget, it is just about cutting down expenditure, cutting to the bone where possible and transferring it to welfare. According to the Business Standard Report, Sri Lanka's economic woes were triggered by the COVID-19 pandemic, which ruined the country's tourism industry. Some critics have, however, placed the blame on President Gotabaya Rajapaksa's government, which approved tax cuts they argue caused the income flowing into government coffers to drop further. Meanwhile, an Al Jazeera report suggested that the country's failure to honor its debt obligation relating to coupon payments had led to Sri Lanka's first default. A total of 78 million in outstanding coupon payments, initially due on April 18th, were still not paid for when the 30-day grace period lapsed on May 18th. Giving his rationale, uh, giving his rationale for concluding that Sri Lanka has already defaulted, the prime minister said, we are in preemptive default. There can be technical definitions from their side they can consider it a default. Our position is very clear. Until there's a debt restructure, we cannot repay. In addition to printing more rupees, Prime Minister Wickremeshengi's government is reportedly planning to cut spending on infrastructure. The funds raised from the spending cuts will be used to finance a two-year relief program. So this is um, pretty, pretty much textbook. Uh, you know, you have hyperinflation, um, and the, the government really has no choice but to continue to print money. Printing money just adds more money to the uh, to the country, which then further devalues the currency, and so it's just kind of a it just kind of spirals down. So it's a very sad um, situation there, um, but it's. It's really interesting to me to look at that situation um, in contrast to um, El Salvador, which you know seems to be doing much better. I mean, they do have sovereign debt that is going to need to be repaid um, or refinanced, um, and and uh, so it'll be interesting to see what they're able to do when when that time comes. But um, um, if if Bitcoin um, you know, uh, rallies, or if they're able to put together uh, volcano bonds, like they were talking about, uh, we're, we're essentially Bitcoin-backed bonds. Um, they could use that money to repay the the, uh, the IMF dollar loans in El Salvador, and then they would be um, free and clear. So, um, 
it'll be interesting to see what happens in El Salvador, but, but, you know, the situation in, um, Sri Lanka is very serious and, uh, it's, uh, probably not going to get a whole lot better, um, because printing money is just going to make the, the money worthless. And then uh, the last article is from Coindesk, and uh, this is uh, uh, an op-ed piece on the Oslo Freedom Forum. So uh, it says, crypto's one assailable use case, one unassailable use case, helping human rights activists. Attendees at this week's Oslo Freedom Forum a 13-year-old annual gathering for human rights and pro-democracy activists might have wondered at times if they'd mistakenly wandered into a cryptocurrency conference. Bitcoin developer Jimmy Song's signature cowboy hat could be spotted here and there at the Oslo Concert Hall, where the forum organized by the Human Rights Foundation took place. The erudite investor and entrepreneur Nick Carter strolled around with an umbrella cane on stage Author and podcaster Laura Shin interviewed a non-fungible token artist. The stalwarts of Bitcoin and Lightning Network development held workshops on using the currency and crypto CEOs discussed hedging strategies for a potential ban on stablecoins backstage. A crypto conference, of course, would not normally feature human rights activists recounting their firsthand experience of political oppression investigative journalists sharing how they fight propaganda and cybersecurity specialists checking phones for traces of spyware. But if you think about it, crypto events maybe could get a little bit more about those kinds of things. While for many, crypto is a way to get rich, for others it's a human rights tool providing sometimes clumsy but still serviceable ways to route around financial censorship and surveillance, especially in those parts of the world where such measures are prevalent. And that use case is not going away no matter which direction the price of Bitcoin goes. If no one values Bitcoin other than a penny, we're still able to move value across the world and fight for freedom, said Jack Mahler's CEO of Bitcoin payments startup Stripe, sporting an orange and violet sweater and Miracle Academy hat on stage. Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation and the curator of the Financial Freedom Track at the Oslo Freedom Forum, was asked if he believes the activist community is warming up to crypto. He replied that the reason he incorporates Bitcoin content into the program is because many organizations are already using it. In some cases, they do, they do so thanks to him. Marin Estefanos, a human rights activist helping to free victims of human traffickers in Eritrea, says she was skeptical about Bitcoin at first, but it warmed to it after attending Gladstein's workshops. At the same time, the government in Eritrea was tightening the screws on Hawala, the centuries-old remittances system relying on a network of people passing cash between each other across borders. <clears throat> now Hawala brokers are asking for their clients' names, and I cannot send my mom any money using my name because the authorities in Eritrea are after her for her human rights advocacy says Estefanos, who is based in Sweden. So Bitcoin became a remittance channel for her. Now she's paying a team of researchers in Bitcoin to help her. For activists from Russia whose work has sent them into exile, Bitcoin also became a lifeline connecting people to the ones they left behind at home, said Leonid Volkov, 
who managed crypto donations for Alexei Navalny, the imprisoned Russian opposition leader. After our movement was outlawed in Russia and we were forced to relocate abroad, we realized Bitcoin is very important as we can use it to support our friends and colleagues back in Russia because otherwise they would be receiving money from, quote, terrorists, Volkov said, referring to how the government is labeling Navalny's organization the Anti-Corruption Foundation. Bitcoin can serve as an underground payment channel in regimes with abusive financial surveillance when receiving money from abroad puts activists in the authorities' crosshairs. That was the case when Students for Liberty, a U.S. non-governmental organization supporting student protests around the globe, needed to send money to a student in China. We sent a payment, and the next day he was summoned to the police station to explain what that was about, Wolf von Lauer, the organization's CEO, said. He also told Coindesk he sent Bitcoin to some of his staff in Ukraine when they needed to evacuate from a dangerous area during the ongoing military invasion by Russia. At least partly due to Gladstein's own long-term devotion to Bitcoin, most crypto-related panels at the forum have been dedicated to the oldest and largest cryptocurrency with a series of practical workshops on various software and services for Bitcoin payments. However, stablecoins also got some attention during a panel with Tether Chief Technology Officer Paolo Ardoino and Ayer Adarinokan, co-founder of African crypto firm Helicarrier. Arduino assured the audience Tether was capable of redeeming its stablecoin, USDT, in large amounts, even in times of crisis, like the ones that took place after the Terra Protocol's UST, <clears throat> an algorithmic stablecoin, and its sister cryptocurrency, Luna, crashed. The audience seemed to receive Arduino's talk well. After the panel, however, he was approached by Obi Nwosu, the founder of UK crypto exchange CoinFloor. He asked what kind of insurance could be created against the risk of Tether failing, especially for holders in countries where they can't receive US dollars in exchange for USDT. I think that Tether would only fail if the government's ban it, Nwosu said. They discussed the possibility to create a kind of insurance policy when USDT holders would receive as much Bitcoin as their tethers were supposed to be worth. But the question how exactly that should work was left open for now. The question of tethers reliability and resilience is especially important for people deprived of access to financial services who are vulnerable to the quirks of their own unstable economies and see USDT as the only available substitute for a US dollar denominated bank account. Nigeria is one example. Dollar-denominated accounts are not accessible to everyone, and you need to be spending $20 a month in fees to keep one, she said. And you might wake up one day to realize the government has converted all your dollars to Naira. Uh, the human rights angle, in addition to being one of the strongest arguments in favor of cryptocurrency's existence, also balances out parts of the crypto narrative in which arrogance, greed, and other unsavory aspects of human nature often steal the show. Nelson Rauda, a Salvadoran investigative journalist for El Faro, poured cold water on the much-touted change in El Salvador, which recognized Bitcoin as legal tender last year after a push from President Nayib Bukele. While Bitcoiners wrote elated tweets over the move for ordinary Salvadorians who are concerned about losing the little money they have to Bitcoin's volatility or the flaws of the government 
blessed Bitcoin wallet. Nothing exciting has happened so far, Rayuda says. Go to the streets and you'll see the people are not taking it. And the rhetoric of rich Bitcoiners telling not-so-rich Salvadorians how bright their future will be is galling, especially when it comes to Bitcoin City, a techno-utopian project to transform the city of La Union into a place where the local economy runs on Bitcoin. The project might erase the community living in La Union, whose homes are slated to be demolished to build Bukele's dream, Raouda said. It was, I was last week in the house of a fisherman who's being displaced, and the community is being displaced by millionaires that are going to support Bitcoin City, he said, adding, Bitcoin has roots in the cypherpunk movement. It was created by people who are activists. How did this change to millionaires flying around on helicopters in El Salvador? It makes no sense to me. Maybe that's something to discuss at regular regular crypto conferences too. So that's interesting because that's a little bit of a different take on the changes that are happening in El Salvador. Um, certainly, you know, when money comes, development follows, and and that can be disruptive to to the uh, the local economy. But the uh, the main gist of this is in uh, as it relates to human rights is uh, is, is really uh, important and I think um, especially um, uh, especially when I talk a little bit later about being becoming a sovereign individual and, and um, the changes that are happening in the world and, and how freedom is being reduced um, pretty much in almost every country uh, to one degree or another. Um, it's really important to have um, um, something that that uh, that can protect you from uh, from confiscation and, and can be uh, peer to peer. Doesn't require uh, a bank or intermediary, and that you can uh, basically take it anywhere because it's everywhere. So moving on. Um, this week, I wanted to talk about um, um, becoming a sovereign individual. Um, and that's really after having read that book by the same title um, about a week ago. So bottom line is I'm, I'm generally an optimist. Um, however, it's, it's really hard to ignore what's happening in the world today. And every week, you know, here in the U.S. anyway, there seems to be a new thing to worry about. So we've got COVID-19, inflation, stock market crash, Russia-Ukraine war, monkeypox, abortion rights, gun control, food shortages, you know, the list just goes on. The biggest issues um, like gun control, abortion rights are just incredibly divisive. Um, They seem to get unlimited attention from the media um, it's it's almost sickening um, the kinds of interviews that I see um, being conducted, particularly uh, recently on this this tragic uh, shooting in Texas. Um, but I think all this adds fuel to the fire of an already polarized society, and and honestly, I. I, I I can hardly wait for the 2024 presidential election because I'm sure that'll be um, as bad, if not worse, than the last one in terms of 
questions about whether the the votes were correct or you know you know who who the winner is it it almost doesn't matter somebody's going to be upset half the country will be mad so over the past couple of years of course we've seen massive social unrest you know we've seen government seizure of property you know in canada with the truckers uh, afghanistan and central bank and russian central bank reserves were basically taken by the us and by the uh, european union central banks um and and we've seen diminished personal freedom um, for people living in Western democracies like Europe, U.S., Canada, New Zealand, Australia, in particular, um, the trend of declining personal freedom has been steady. And, and it just seems to be a key element of, of the crisis playbook. And we don't seem to be lacking for crises these days. Um, for example, when you look at a country like I talked about earlier, beset with hyperinflation and, and, and a collapsing society like Sri Lanka, it's tempting to think that, hey, what's happening there can't happen here. And I just don't think that's true. So what's really clear to me is that we're living through a tumultuous time in world history. The trends are clear if you pay attention. And those without a plan will just simply have less options. And so I think, personally, it's important to protect your family um, from this kind of uncertainty in, in any way that you can. Um, and it's better to have a plan than no plan. So, like I said, after I read the book, The Sovereign Individual, I, I really began to realize um, that modern technology, you know, internet, Bitcoin, really makes centralized nation states less relevant and decentralized global communities more relevant. So for example, the Bitcoin community that I interact with on Twitter is international, shares the core ethos of Bitcoin, which is, you know, many things, but um, hard work, freedom, liberty, sound money. Um, and that community can interact, educate, share ideas around the clock, 24-7-365. And now with modern technology, you can work from home, virtually anywhere in the world for many companies. And other than some legal formalities that you have to go through, nothing's really stopping you from living where you're treated best. So just as I've always advocated for a diversified investment portfolio to manage risk in the same way, I'm thinking it's important to diversify your life internationally to manage risks such as limitations on your freedom, risk to your personal safety and government seizure of your hard earned assets, whether that's overtly or covertly through taxation and inflation. It's basically about not putting all your eggs in one sovereign basket. So, what is becoming a sovereign individual entail? Well, first of all, you have to have a plan. That's really the first step. And I'd recommend working with a reputable expert to help you craft a plan that's tailored to your individual situation. I think um, a holistic approach is important. It needs to take into consideration, you know, your uh, priorities like, you know, personal freedom, taxes, lifestyle, etc. Um, one advantage to living in a different country is that in many cases you can pay less taxes and enjoy more personal freedom. 
Indeed, there are many folks who have retired and moved out of the U.S. to Mexico, Central America, or Puerto Rico, where they have a lower cost of living and a laid-back lifestyle. Now, some people may say, well, it's dangerous there. Well, you know, it's dangerous in L.A. It's dangerous in New York City, you know. So it's all relative, and there are certainly nice parts and not-so-nice parts of lots of places. So if you you do your due diligence, you should be able to find um, uh, a place that's comfortable. I think it's also important to have a plan B that can be implemented rapidly. Um, it could be just as simple as, uh, you know, we're going to get in the truck and we're going to drive to Mexico, you know, <laughs> but uh, whatever, or Canada, um, if you're up north. But, um, you know, you should have a plan B if for some reason conditions deteriorate and your situation becomes untenable where you're at and you need to leave quickly. It's also important to have a plan A, which is really your longer term plan for, you know, where do you want to live with, with some kind of a defined time frame for executing. <clears throat> a lot of people live in California. They don't like the politics. They don't like the taxes. And so where do they go? They go to Florida. Well. Florida's nice. There's no income taxes there. The weather's nice. Um, but they do have property taxes. And you might not like the politics, you know, if, if you're a more of a centrist or even a, a more of on the liberal side, you may not like the conservative politics and, and the lawmaking that's going on there. So there's, so, you know, is that, is that really the best place to go? You know, maybe. For you and for your family, maybe that's perfect. Maybe Texas is the right place. Maybe Arizona is the right place. Or maybe somewhere else, you know. Um, and that's part of, you know, really putting a plan together is figuring out what works best for you and for your family. Uh, the next step, I think, is, to, is really to get a second passport. And there are many ways to do this, and many people are surprised that you can still do this in most countries without actually having to renounce your citizenship. Uh, by the way, if you don't have a passport for your own country, um, you should get one because otherwise there's no way for you to leave the country legally. Assuming that there are no other limitations placed on you like there are in some countries, like I know Canada, if you don't have a COVID vaccine, you can't travel. And that might be another reason why you want to have a second citizenship, you know. Um, there are many ways to obtain a second citizenship, and not all of them are costly. Um, you can apply for citizen, citizenship by descent if you have a parent or grandparent from another country. And, you know, you may have to live there for some time to establish citizenship in some cases. Some countries are better than others, um, you know, if you... If you have a Russian passport, that's not that great nowadays. But maybe a German um, passport because it's EU would be good. It would give you plenty of global travel options, although you might not want to live there because the taxes are pretty high. And, you know, again, it's not super free. Um, but you can also get citizenship by investment, um, which is more expensive. Um, and in some cases without having to move. So, like, for example, if you invest in real estate in Turkey, that can allow you to obtain citizenship there, which, you know, the investment needs to be $250,000 U.S. 
Um, there are other countries where you can make a bank deposit or buy a government bond to get citizenship, but those investment amounts could be quite a bit higher. There are other places where you can get citizenship for a donation, and that would include several Caribbean countries, and that donation is anywhere from 100000 to 150000 um, which would cover you and your family. Um, and I'll include a link to a great uh, summary um, that I found um, from the Nomad Capitalist that uh, kind of lays all those options out and costs and things. <clears throat> um, the Caribbean citizenship can probably be the fastest, most cost-efficient method to obtain second citizenship, um, not requiring you to move. But each country is a little bit different and does require some research to see what works best for your own situation. And again, getting help from a reputable expert is definitely worth it, um, uh, especially since there's a lot of hoops to jump through in the application process. And, you know, you want to make sure it's all done legally and properly. I would look at a second passport like an insurance policy that will allow you to leave your country to travel and live if conditions warrant. Um, or if you just want a better lifestyle, you know, depending on how much you make and assuming you ultimately move to a tax friendly country. The tax savings alone could more than cover the fees you pay to get your second citizenship. Uh, the next thing would be to, after you know you get your citizenship, it would be a good idea to establish you know one or more bank uh, or investment accounts in other countries. Now there may be some reporting requirements for your country of residence. For sure, there is in the U.S. When you have foreign-owned accounts, you have to actually disclose it on your tax return, and there might be some other forms that need to be filled out as well but and that's a bit of a hassle but i think it's worth it to have some of your cash and investments physically diversified internationally um, in many cases you can get higher interest rates on your cash deposits you can have access to a greater array of global stock and other investments including bitcoin physical etfs which are currently not approved in the u.s um, as one example um, you can also invest in real estate in other countries, and in many cases, prices are lower and yields on investment properties are generally higher, especially compared to the U.S. or Canada, um, which you know are sort of in a bubble, like I've been talking about. You could buy a second home in a country where you hold second citizenship and have that as a place to go for vacation or if you need an emergency. Um, if you own self-custody Bitcoin, since it's decentralized, there's not much to do except bring your hardware wallet or memorize your private key and jump on a plane. Although you may still have to pay capital gains taxes if you sell any coins before establishing your new residence in a tax-friendly <clears throat> and, most importantly, Bitcoin-friendly uh, country. Again, it's important, I think, to work with an expert to make sure everything's done legally and that you find the best places to put your money and that you're properly set up, you know, to file your taxes. You may eventually find that there are countries where you want to hold your money, that some where you want to invest, and <clears throat> others where you want to live. So, um, <clears throat> anyway, um, I just wanted to explore that um, concept because I think being a sovereign individual goes very much to the core of uh, of the Bitcoin ethos. And um, uh, hopefully uh, you find that uh, uh, an interesting thought experiment, if nothing else, and maybe uh, something worth uh, working towards. 
And of course, this is not financial or legal advice, so uh, make sure you do your own homework. Okay, well, thank you for listening to the podcast this week. If you enjoyed the show, please like and leave a comment. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. You can also follow my Substack at bitcoinfortress.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Nick Reichert. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.